I would encourage you to uh, take your Bibles with me, and we're going to turn to John chapter 18 as we continue in our journey through the Gospel of John. John chapter 18. Uh, we're looking now at uh, verses 12 through 27. John chapter 18, 12 through 27. Well, before I read that, I, I just want to tell you something. Um, Jim prayed for uh, the ministry at Center Baptist Church. Uh, we have partnered with them, and, and uh, we are supporting uh, Davy's ministry there, financially, but of course, more importantly, in prayer. Um, but just a, a joyful thing this morning is that uh, Chris Atkins, and so Bob, one of our elders here, his, uh, his son is preaching the word today. So um, the work of raising up uh, others in gospel ministry is happening there, and, uh, and Chris is very much tracking towards uh, being an elder, I think, uh, at Center Baptist. So uh, just praise God for that, that uh, wonderful um, work of the Lord to, to cause that ministry to thrive, um, and continue to pray for them. Uh, it's a it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing that is happening there, and I think it is our joy uh, to be partnering with them. All right, back to our text here. Uh, John chapter 18 is where we are. Uh, I'll, I'll pick it up in verse 12 and carry it through to verse 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, What I said is wrong. Bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. This is God's word. And uh, it's for our good. It's for our 
formation, our spiritual formation. And uh, we want to pray. I invite you to do so now. Pray with me. We need, um, we need the Spirit's help during this time. I need the Spirit's help. So would you join me? Father in heaven, what we have open before us is nothing less than your living and active word. You give it to us to strengthen us, to make us wise to salvation, to form the character of Christ in us. You give it to us so that we may see you. You give it to us so we may see Jesus, your son, and delight in him. So I pray, Father, that you would now cause us through this time to greatly treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that I'm just a man. And what needs to happen in our hearts is more than I can do. I can do nothing, in fact. What we need is to hear from your Spirit. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through in this time, that you would cause your word to grip our hearts and to change us from within and accomplish that work that only you can do. We pray that as a result, Jesus himself would be glorified among us and it's in his name we pray it. Amen. Uh, you know, when you're uh, presented with an opportunity, perhaps it's an investment that could bring significant growth. Maybe there's a, a, a project that requires dedication, a, a job opportunity that requires maybe great sacrifice. Or think of Olympians as they're thinking about whether or not they're going to uh, compete. And uh, I know that the, the plan for this summer got, got waylaid and uh, been pushed out, I guess, to next summer. But even as they're considering their, uh, whether or not they're going to compete, they're asking the question, am I all in? Can I be all in? All in meaning holding nothing back, nothing left in reserve, putting it all out. As I read this passage, this section of the Gospel of John, I'm looking at Peter, and I've been looking at Peter all week and wondering, did he think he was all in? Now, it's got to be said here that all that happened to Jesus was part of God's divine plan to bring salvation to his own people. So in this narrative, we see violent opposition to Jesus, exemplified in the religious leaders, and we see Annas uh, in the confrontation and the, and the questioning of Jesus, that violent opposition that had been brewing for some time. The religious leaders had been plotting and scheming, trying to figure out a way to put Jesus to death. But we also observe Peter, his half-hearted attempt to follow Jesus, and, and he ends up denying Jesus three times. We know from the scriptures, we know from how Jesus told the story as he prepared his disciples, we, we understand that Jesus had to suffer and die alone. He alone bore the full weight of sin's consequence for all who believe. He did that for us. If you're a believer, he did that for you. 
And so the wicked opposition of the sworn enemies of Jesus, as, as well as the flimsy resolve of Peter here, are really examples of that which Jesus died for. So when I'm asking the question, and we're asking the question this morning as we look at Peter, what does all in for Jesus look like? And while it is a, a story of failure, I want to take it from the perspective of the positive. What Peter illustrates, what, what Annas, the high priest, illustrates, is the opposite of what we are being called to. All in for Jesus looks like these four things, at least from this text. First, to be confident in what he has done. Being all in for Jesus is being confident in what he has done. Being all in for Jesus means being confident in his word. Being all in for Jesus is being confident in who he is. And being all in for Jesus is being willing to suffer with him. First, be confident in what Jesus has done. The... Uh, the Declaration of Independence begins with an assertion that all men are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights given by our Creator. And, and, and the thing that, that it begins with, this assertion is, is said to be self-evident. It is obvious. It's, it's plain to observe. It's self-evident. Well, from our Bible text this morning and from the section I read, I take it that the idea, the concept, the truth of penal substitution, that is to say that an individual would stand in the place of many for the sake of delivering them from death. That is a self-evident truth. And how do I get there? I want to imagine, I mean, you know how the story unfolds if you're familiar with your scriptures, but I want to imagine that you're hearing or reading the story of Jesus for the very first time. Here's something that the Holy Spirit wants us to know. Before Jesus dies on the cross, before his suffering, we are told here by, by the unfolding of events, we are told here that Jesus is going to be a substitute. He is going to die in the place of his people. And in fact, that was God's plan all along. And we can see this unfold here. At Jesus' arrest, he's taken to Annas. This is the, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas had been a high priest, and he was still called a high priest, if you will, he was installed, and this is how the priesthood had been corrupted. He was installed or appointed by a Roman governor, I believe Quirinius, but a, fall, a, a governor that had, that had uh, preceded Pilate, he fell out of favor with him, so he was deposed, and, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was installed in his place. And really, this high priest was a kind of a family of religious uh, rulers. So he's still influential. He still ha uh, wields great power. He is questioning Jesus. But we're told of the relationship between Annas and Caiaphas. And we're told here in the text for some strange reason that it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, why is John pause here to give us this detail? In fact, Caiaphas had said this uh, back in... Well, it's recorded back in John chapter 11. This was the occasion where, where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And, and the religious leaders were so concerned that, that so many people would follow Jesus. And so what Caiaphas, and this is where you can see that the plan was hatched to put Jesus to death. Caiaphas wanted to justify his own plan to kill Jesus. And I'll take you back to John 11. He says there, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And we're told, and we're given an interpretive key here. And why? Why did he say this? 51 of John chapter 11. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, John is telling us this in this context of the narrative here where Jesus is being questioned. Oh yeah, that's Caiaphas who said that thing. And John brings it up because he needs us to know something. He needs us to understand what Jesus is about to do. The self-evident truth God wanted us to know. And so he put it in the mouth of one of Jesus' most fierce enemies. Now, what is it that Jesus accomplished at the cross? And, and people have thought about this for uh, those theologians that, that would maybe resist the idea, and we can just call them liberal, <laughs> They would resist the idea that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. They look at the, they look at the cross, they look at Jesus' suffering and death as a, as a kind of example of love to be imitated. Other theologians see it as this cosmic struggle between good and evil where, where Jesus gains victory over Satan. And those things are certainly true, but they don't paint the whole picture of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. It is a self-evident truth. I believe that we're being told here by John, of course, more than that, by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute, a substitute in punishment, the perfect Son of God taking upon himself the full measure of God's wrath for sin. If you're going to be all in for Jesus, you've got to be confident in what he has done for you. Here's some other texts to delight in. I read this one often. Can you guess? One of my go-to. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Apostle Paul explains there, for our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we, may, we might become the righteousness of God. The substitution that happened at the cross, Jesus became sin. And though he had never committed any sin, though he had never failed in any way, though he had never even had the remotest sinful thought, he was pure, undefiled, holy, magnificent in all of his ways. He became sin for us. So that, we, by faith in him, might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul gives us a picture in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You see, the law comes. We look at the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and we read through them, and they condemn us. Because even if we think that those external ones, well, I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't 
borne false witness about anyone. Really? Never? I've never. Are you prepared to say I've never coveted anything of my neighbor's? And are you really prepared to say that there haven't been occasions where I've thought more highly of something or myself more than God? Or when I read the law, I am cursed. I come under its judgment and it reveals the wickedness in my heart and I feel and you will feel that you do not measure up. And yet Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. That's substitution in our place. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was hanged on a tree and he became the curse. Listen, if you're all in for Jesus, you got to be confident in what he's done for you. Second, being all in for Jesus means being confident in his word. Being confident in his word. Uh, now, if we've learned anything at all during this pandemic, if we've learned anything at all from the experts at the CDC and the WHO, it's that sometimes, and I don't mean any disrespect, but it's going to sound like it, sometimes I don't think they really know what they're talking about. I think you feel it. Um, we've been told that masks don't help. Then we're told that they do. We're told to disinfect our groceries, and then we're told that, well, we don't really need to. We've been told that there's easy contact from surfaces. Then we're told that contracting COVID in that way is highly unlikely. Now, I get it. I get it. They're learning, and they're sharing what they know in real time. And, and I'm going to submit that I think as Christians, we are called to submit to what the authorities say. So I'm not, I'm not calling for any sort of civil disobedience over masks in a store or anything. What I'm saying is they're giving us their best guess because it's unknown. You know, there are certain phrases that you and I use all the time that would never, ever come out of Jesus' mouth. Think of this. I would say, somebody asked me a question, I I'm not sure. Let me look into that. Would Jesus ever say that? No. I, I would say to a question, or asking me a favor, or asking me my calendar, maybe, possibly, I, I just got to wait and see, or I don't know right now, or I have to do this often, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I misunderstood you, or maybe just more honestly, I was just being selfish at the time. These are things that would never come out of Jesus' mouth. Now, in verse 19, we can see that Jesus is questioned about his teaching. He's questioned about his disciples and what they know. And what, the, what, these, what Annas is trying to do in that council, they're trying to trap Jesus in his words. They want to justify that they're about to kill him. That plan is already hatched. That's going down. Now they're just looking for some evidence to confirm what they've decided that they're already going to do. And Jesus gives them the answer. I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus' words... And the truth of them offended these religious leaders. 
There were so many things that the priests and religious leaders took offense to. But I would say probably the most irksome to them was when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Or on another occasion where he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Taking for himself the divine name. Jesus was always clear with who he is. He was always clear with his teaching. He never held anything back. He always spoke exactly the truth. And because his teaching was backed up by things that only God could do, it carried a weight of authority that they'd never seen before. Who could change water into wine? Who could make a feast for thousands from a, a few loaves and fish? Who could do that? Who could, who could heal a man who was born blind? Has that ever happened before? Who could restore full mobility to a lame man? Who could raise the dead? A dead man who was rotting in a tomb for four days. Who could do that? It was hard for the religious leaders to crush Jesus' influence because his words were so powerful. Annas outright opposed Jesus' words. We know where he stood. He had no tolerance for anything that Jesus had said, and all he was looking for was a way to put him to death. But now we think of Peter. Peter had made that declaration to Jesus. He said to Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Peter knew the things that Jesus had said. Mark's gospel records for us that uh, on at least three occasions, but probably more, Jesus told his disciples very directly that he was going to die and rise again. At least three occasions. And in fact, here in the Gospel of John, Jesus had explicitly told his disciples both the way that he would die as well as the purpose of his death. Back in John 12, I'll remind you, it's Jesus there said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John provides his comment. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up on the cross. So the crowd answered them. They understood what he was saying. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus' disciples, Peter, heard Jesus say he was going to die, that he was going to be lifted up, and in the purpose of his lifting up would be to draw all men to himself. But as exemplified by Peter's denials, we'll get to that in substance in a bit, he lost confidence in Jesus' word. Are you all in? Do you have confidence in Jesus' word? I've been a believer in Jesus since I was seven, eight years old. And there are still days when I find myself doubting, where I find myself struggling, where I find myself wrapped up in worry, where I'm feeling the weight of disappointment 
struggle. Admittedly, over the last few weeks, Kathy's been very helpful. On more than several occasions, she's snapped me out of it by reminding something, reminding me of something in the scriptures. I ask myself, if I'm all in for Jesus, I have confidence in his word that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do I have confidence in his word that says, in all things God works for the good of those that love him, to those who are called according to his purpose? Do I have confidence in his word that when I, when I am confronted with my own failures before the Lord, that it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. Do I have confidence in Jesus' word? Do you have confidence in Jesus' word? If you're all in, you do. Third, if you're all in for Jesus, you'll be confident in who he is. Confident in who he is. Now, confidence is something that, uh, um, that's helpful. Um, if, if you're uh, trying to get a job, you should walk into that interview with a measure of confidence. Not being overconfident, but rightly confident, appropriately confident. Knowing the answer to the question and even confident in what you don't know. You say, well, I don't know that answer. But at least comfortable in your own skin. Being confident in who you are, of course, has a limit. Um, sometimes we fake it, don't we? Uh, we have a friend, an old friend back in Canada. We've lost touch over the years, but this is something that he did all the time. His name's Andrew. And uh, in a conversation, just as a, a way of, of having fun, we'd be talking about something, and he'd make some sort of claim, sometimes a seemingly outlandish claim, and he would back it up with a bunch of statistics and things, and say, well, and we'd just go, is, is that true? Is that true? Well, no, it wasn't. It was just his way of toying with us. And he'd always said, if you just say something, whether that's true or not, just confidently, people will believe you. I think it's something that politicians have quite mastered, isn't it? <laughs> just say it, and, and just, it would be taken as true. Well, there's a kind of a self-confidence, a kind of a, uh, a, an aggrandizing confidence in who you are and what you do that is not helpful, not helpful when it comes to our approach to Jesus. Annas, he was the high priest. I, I mentioned he was appointed by Quirinius. He was a Roman governor. He had been deposed by um, Pilate's uh, predecessor. Um, Annas, as high priest, understood his role to function as the mediator. This is what the high priest did. You look in the Old Testament. The mediator between the people of God and the Lord himself. That was the high priest's role. Annas had confidence in himself in that role. He had confidence that he knew what God wanted. He had confidence that he knew somehow, some way, that this Jesus needed to be wiped out. He was confident in his role. He was confident in his position. He knew he had the power of influence over the, old, uh, the Roman governor. He could bend the Roman governor to his will. He could stir up a crowd. He even had influence over his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And yet, who is sitting before him? Because his confidence is entirely 
misplaced. Who is he interrogating? Yes, it's Jesus. But he has no clue who Jesus is, is in essence. He thinks that Jesus is some kind of messianic imposter. When all along, Annas himself is the imposter. Even in that setting where there's this, this back and forth, Jesus gives a, a straightforward answer. Ask my disciples. One of the guards there smacks Jesus across the face. And Jesus asks, or Annas asks, not Annas, one of, the, one of the officers says to Jesus, is that how you answer the high priest? And if, and if Annas and all of those gathered there interrogating Jesus would have understood he wa- who he was, Jesus could have asked the same question of them. Is this how you answer the high priest? Like I said, Annas thinks he's the real deal. But the way he abuses Jesus demonstrates the height of his ignorance and his rebellion against God. Could, could Annas be the most corrupt high priest that there ever was in Israel? You see, who is the true high priest? Who is the one that God appointed to be the once for all mediator between God and man? The writer of Hebrews summarizes it for us. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Whatever Annas did by bringing the animal into the Holy of Holies that once a year as high priest until his son-in-law took over and took that job, whatever that was, was a, a thing that had to be repeated year after year after year. But Jesus, as the eternal, once for all high priest, entered into the holy place, not by means of the blood of a bull or a goat, or any animal, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing not temporary reprieve from consequence of sin, but an eternal redemption. This is who Annas is looking eye to eye with, the true high priest. The Apostle Paul says about Jesus, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Annas thought he was a a representative for the people to God, and he was confident in himself. But if you're all in for Jesus, you need to be confident in who he is. He is the only mediator that you need you see we need that representative before god and jesus offered up himself john 14 6 saying i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me are you all in for jesus do you know who he is and who he is for you Finally, if you're all in for Jesus, you'll be willing to suffer with him. 
if, if you're up on social media, what I mean up on, aware and, and kind of in the know, you know what are called influencers. Uh, these are people who cultivate a presence, uh, whether on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and maybe a bunch of other platforms I haven't heard of, but they exist, I'm, getting, I'm guessing. Anyway, for, for these influencers, it's all about money. Influencers get others to follow them, and then they get paid by companies looking to market their products. So if you can get an influencer to like your product, then the people that like the influencer may, in fact, buy your product. That's how this whole thing works. And I looked it up just to get a sense of this. I looked it up. The most successful influencer is Kendall Jenner, apparently. She has 108 million followers. Followers. What does it mean if someone follows an influencer? Well, not much at all. <laughs> yeah, it might impact a purchase decision about a purse or some shoes or maybe even a car. If you follow an influencer, it might cost you some time as you look at what they post. It might cost you a little extra money because you bought that more expensive thing that you might not have otherwise done. Influencers have many, many, many followers, but what does that following mean? Well, very little to the world. When we think about what it means to follow Jesus, how did Peter follow Jesus? I mean, he had said that he was all in. Back in chapter 13, Jesus was speaking of the fact there that he was going somewhere where his disciples could not follow. Well, Peter said to him, Lord, this is 13, 37, Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's saying, I'm all in. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And what Jesus predicted there has unfolded for us in this section that we read in John chapter 18. Just to get the, the emphasis on it, Mark, Mark records Peter's Emph emphatic assurance that he will be with him, that he is all in. Peter says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Oh, there's confidence. But here we see in, this, in our text here, Jesus had been arrested and taken away. Now, Peter had already tried to prove himself in the last section. That's where he, he pulled out his sword and started swinging, and he ended up, he went for the kill, but he ended up taking off Malchus's ear. Jesus says, no, we're, we're not doing that. Malchus' ear was healed, healed by Jesus. And here Jesus is being questioned by Annas, verse 15. We're told, Simon Peter followed Jesus. He followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, John here is the other disciple. He refers to himself as the other disciple, not naming himself. But John has some connections, and so he gets Peter into the courtyard. There's a fire. The servants are warming themselves. Peter, Peter wanted to get close enough to Jesus to see what was going on. But when he's asked about his association with Jesus, verse 17, a servant girl, the one keeping the door, asks him. Then there's some people warming themselves by the fire. 
And on the third occasion, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Now you'd think, yeah, I, that's my cousin. You hacked off his ear. But in each of these three occasions, Peter says, yeah, I don't know him. Three denials. Matthew tells us that Peter was so emphatic in his denial that he actually made one of them with an oath. I promise you. Maybe like a, a cross my heart, hope to die kind of deal. And we can only speculate what's going on in his mind. But he see this thing unfolding before him. And this isn't how it was supposed to go down, at least not in his mind. And now suddenly all of his resolve, all of his assurance to Jesus that he would never turn away, all of that just folds, collapses like a house of cards. Now we can only speculate what's going on in his mind, but I think he just simply feared suffering. Jesus had already told his disciples, if the world hates you, in other words, that the world hates you, it's going to happen. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. And here at this arrest and this questioning, it seems that this fact is being proven out. It seems that everyone is against Jesus. The tide has turned against Jesus and it's getting deadly. And Peter is confronted with this. Is he all in. And at this point, it looks like he's just a half-hearted follower. Following Jesus is costly. It's costly. Jesus had made that clear. He said in 16, John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, at the end of this gospel, we're going to see how Jesus restores Peter and reaffirms his call in his life. And I don't doubt that in the years after Jesus was raised from the grave, that Peter often thought of how Jesus had told him that he would not be strong in his resolve to follow and how he did, in fact, denied even knowing him. But here is the good news piece of this. The reality of the cross is that it changed Peter. Looking back on what Jesus had done for him changed him forever. What a different man Peter was when he wrote his first letter. And Bobby had us read this earlier. After Jesus was raised from the grave, Peter suffered for his trust in Christ, and he was all in. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What changed? What changed? Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And brothers and sisters, this is as true today as when Jesus said it. 
Do you ever wonder if you have what it takes to follow Jesus, to be all in? The rebellion of the religious leaders, the weakness of Peter's resolve to truly follow Jesus, all of that played a part in revealing that we bring nothing, nothing at all, to the relationship with Christ. I sympathize with Peter because I know this to be true. You and I don't have the willpower to be all in with Jesus. And Jesus knows that. And don't think that you would do any differently than Peter in the same circumstance. And really, apart from the grace of God, don't think that you'd be more open to Jesus than Annas. The takeaway here is that this isn't an exercise in willpower. Just try not to be like Peter before the cross. Try to be like him after the cross. No. It is the power of the cross itself that empowers us to be confident in Jesus. It empowers us to be all in for him. That's grace at work. The songs we sang this morning highlighted the grace of the Lord Jesus. He will hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's God's doing. Peter could look back on the cross and its meaning and get it. I've been made new. And what Peter needed, what we all need, is power to be all in with Jesus. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The thing that the gospel demands for us, it gives to us. And if you hear me say nothing else this morning, the only reason that you can be all in for Jesus is because he was all in for you. He acted in advance to secure you in him. The Apostle Paul describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is our hope today, brothers and sisters. Looking at the failure of, I mean, just look through the Bible. It's a record of failure one after another. Failure of people. But the other side of the story, it's about the triumph of God to, in spite of human failure and our stumbling and bumbling and even our blaspheming and open rebellion, it's the story of God to say, you're mine. 
And so because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, it's the power of God. It's the power of God for me to be confident and know what Jesus has done at the cross, that he is indeed my substitute. The gospel, that story of the good news of Jesus, that he came to this earth, that he took upon himself your sin, the demand that God has on you to be holy and completely righteous is given to you as a gift in Jesus. So listen, if you're here this morning, if you're listening on the live stream, watching, get this. The only thing that you can be confident about before God is what Jesus has done for you. Put your faith in him. When you hear the good news of the gospel, it opens your, your mind to believe. It opens your heart to receive. And you're made alive. Be confident in what Jesus has done for you. The gospel is the power of God to know that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus himself. So you can go to him. Always. And any time. Know that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you even now. So go to him. The power of the gospel gives you confidence in the very word of God because of what Christ has accomplished. We know that this book will be our comfort, our strength. It will be our daily bread. It will be the food that we need. And we can be confident in it it's the word of Christ. And for whatever we might be facing, whether persecution from the world, pandemic, unrest, conflict in our own families, Jesus has given us the means by his own power and reminds us that we can indeed suffer with him. Because this isn't all there is. There's a greater glory. Apostle Paul says the sufferings of this, these light and momentary afflictions, he calls them, are not worthy of being compared to the glory that will be revealed in Christ when he returns. That's what we hold on to. Jesus was in all in for you so you could be all in for him. And I trust that that's where your heart is today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, the grace revealed in your son. And Lord, we here this morning, all of us are deniers and blasphemers. We are failures. And that's why Jesus needed to go to the cross. We don't have anything to offer you. All we can do is put our trust in him and we thank you for revealing to us your son, revealing to us your righteousness in him. And Lord, for the gift of salvation. God, would you strengthen us always to keep looking to the cross so that whatever we might be facing, 
so we can be confident in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be people who respond to the fact that Jesus is all in for us. Help us to be those people that are all in for him. Empower us to be that. We pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen.